This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Seventy-eight is the year that I'll never forget in my life. It was a very traumatic year for myself personally, and obviously my siblings and my mother. Just basically, the shit hit the fan. And we were highly impacted and affected by his decisions he made in his life that had nothing to do with any of us. In 1978, Tony Thevis was only 11 years old when his world changed forever. Old enough to remember it all, you know. April of 78, when he escaped, I mean, it was major, major news coverage in Atlanta. Helicopters flying over our home and. It was just chaotic, and we had to have security at the house 24/7, 365. The home was raided several months later. Tony and his siblings still had to go to school every day while the news of their father was broadcast in Atlanta. Oh yeah, didn't do me any good. I'm not a good student, but we did go to school, of course. Then we had the the killings on Riverside Drive in, in our own neighborhood, which was was just very traumatic for us. And we were young. We just didn't understand why all this was happening. It was the beginning of the end of the life that we knew、uh, prior to that year. Joanne Thebus had an impossible job of keeping her kids away from all the events surrounding her ex-husband. She kept us protected from it, obviously. But back in those days, you did everything at the post office when you mailed your bills and you and you needed stamps. And I remember distinctly going to the post office with my mom many times, and seeing this wanted poster up, and there's my dad sitting right there, and she would try to hide it from us, but you couldn't. Wherever there was a federal building, you saw that poster. And Mike Thevis couldn't let go of his vengeance against Roger Dean Underhill, even if that meant murdering him just a few miles away from the house where his children were. I very much resent my father for putting our family through that in '78. Number one with the escape, and then very, very much so with the the murders that happened、uh, just down the street from our home. I thought that was later on in life, and still today, I thought that was just absolutely incredible that that, that would happen. While he was on the run, Thevis's risky plans also included traveling back to Atlanta to see his children in secret. I had a habit of coming to Atlanta and watching my younger children at Chastain Park, for example, playing ball. Even ran into、uh, Paul King, FBI agent there. In fact, I remember an episode where, while we were on trial in Rome, I was talking to him about where he lived, and、uh, he told the judge that I had intimidated him、uh, because I knew where he lived. Where the reason I knew where he lived, I almost ran smack into him. Because he lived at the exit to Chastain Park, and I was over there watching an eight-year-old that I have play、uh, football. That ran right into the case agent who was looking all over the world for me. It's true. I hung around Atlanta because of my kids, the opportunity to see him, to be near him, or whatever. It's easy enough for people to say, "Well, he should have gone to Europe. He should have stayed in Europe if he went to Europe." And I had all the passports and paraphernalia, and, and everything was just perfect. But、uh, I just couldn't do it. One of the reasons he did not leave the country is because of 
he claims he wanted to see his children off and on. Obviously, the three younger ones, we couldn't keep a secret at that age. You know, you say, oh, I saw my daddy today. Well, where? Next thing you know, they're going to find him. The, the older children could probably keep a secret. And I imagine as we got older, he would have reached out to us to come see him. He did see uh, us children at Chastain Park playing football and cheerleading, but we didn't know he was there. I think it's probably accurate that my older siblings saw him, maybe for lunch or breakfast or something of that nature, but you know, it was by accident. It wasn't something that I think was planned in that he just showed up. I think he put his children at a lot of risk. Even at any age, you'd still want to tell someone, I just saw my dad. You got to remember back then, there was no internet and cell phones, none of that existed. And it's easy to get fake IDs and passports. And he had a whole new identity. You obviously can't get that done today. And I, I just could not ever understand in my lifetime why he didn't just go across to another country without an extradition treaty. And he had lawyers who had advised him that the places he could go to, and he just never would do it. Tony had been listening to the podcast, and he had heard FBI agent Foster's story of how his father bragged about taking Joanne's jewelry with him on the escape. It sounds exactly accurate to who my father was. He was braggadocious. He talked a lot, and it was all about him all the time. It doesn't make me happy to know that now when I heard that he bragged about the jewelry. There were a million dollars worth of jewels. And they then put a gift tax lien on my mother's estate for $360,000 that she had to pay. That was a significant amount of money 40-something years ago. Hell, it is today. And it was very extremely stressful and uh, couldn't sell the house because there was a lien on it. She lent him those jewels to borrow against a loan at some time a couple years before that escape. So obviously as her son, I'm very upset about hearing that because it caused a lot of stress in our family big time. He was completely out of her life in April of 78 when they got divorced. And she was happy to, about it. She was completely on her own and she didn't know anything about him escaping, the plans to escape, or certainly the plans to take out competitors. She had moved on in her life. And then when all that occurred in 78, the shit hit the fan for her, and she didn't want anything to do with him then. I mean, who would? So thank God that my stepfather came into her life at that time. And, uh, you know, they spent the next 40 years together. Just a few weeks after Thevis had been captured, now awaiting his trial, Paul Lieberman and Jim Stewart had requested a meeting with Thevis in jail, but were denied by his attorney, Bobby Lee Cook. Instead, they received two lengthy letters from Thevis, written after he was caught, but before the trial. He was a very smooth guy, and I would say also very, very bright. We tried to meet with him more formally in, the, in prison in Atlanta, and authorities were, now he escaped. So he was now really under total lock and key. And so we said, you know, can you maybe communicate with us in writing? Well, he wrote two manifestos for us. And we published them in the newspaper on the front page with some analysis, too. 
Thevis had spoken to Lieberman and Stewart on multiple occasions over the years, and he had even pondered using them as go-betweens with the government as he considered turning himself in while on the run. The two handwritten letters from Thevis were published in the Atlanta Constitution in full over two days. Thevis said, I never contacted Pat since my escape, and I am not surprised about her December 1st marriage. We often discussed her plans to marry before she was 30 years old during her visits with me. I'm happy for her, and I hope soon that all the publicity will die out and she can enjoy a long and happy marriage. She deserves it, especially in light of all her problems involving me. Pat had met someone else. She had gotten married and was ready to start a new life. She was also headed to her own trial in Panama City, Florida. Thevis also said, Roger would be my best defense when I finally was caught and went to trial. I expected to be caught since I was not doing a hell of a lot to hide myself. I had a passport and could have left the country any time. I surely had the money. And again, Thevis went after Underhill. He was incapable of telling the truth, even in things of no consequence. A compulsive, pathological liar. I came to know him later as a violent and psychotic man, capable of doing anything to serve his own devious needs. In the letter, Thevis did not make mention of whom he thought murdered Roger Dean Underhill. Thevis also talked about the day he walked out the back door of the prison. The day I left was my worst day mentally since my incarceration. You don't take his word for everything, but in that he... He sort of apologized to these women that he had roped into this. And there probably was some truth in that. I mean, they had exposed themselves, clearly. But he said, I talked them into it. I apologize. And I think he was truly contrite about that. So he, and, and he defended himself. Thevis said, now, with all the hindsight, I see it was a bad move. All I did was get me and others into more trouble especially Jeanette. Her only crime, really, is in loving me. It seems you always hurt the ones you love most. The trial was finally ready to begin. The venue for the trial had been moved from Atlanta out to the small town of Rome, Georgia, and this conservative southern town had little tolerance for a pornographer. But they also didn't know who Thebus was. Despite being just over an hour outside of Atlanta, most of the residents didn't get their news from Atlanta. They got it from nearby Tennessee newspapers. Rome, Georgia, population 32,000. It is a quiet, conservative city, a city where the churches are substantial and heavily attended and where the residents take a very dim view of pornography. But despite their general dislike of smut and the people who sell it, the residents of Rome do seem to pride themselves on at least being reasonable about the whole thing. As one woman told me, Mike Thevis won't be hurt by having his trial here. He just won't be helped. The battle lines were drawn. It was the trial of the decade in Georgia, with both sides boasting impressive pedigrees. Mike Thevis was ready to go, and he was convinced he was going to win with his army of top lawyers behind him. Like Julius Caesar, I've crossed the Rubicon, I'm ready to do battle. His attorney, Bobby Lee Cook, he's considered one of the best and a resident of nearby Somerville. This is, without a doubt, Bobby Lee Cook country. Ed Garland, a bright young Atlanta attorney, he represents the Thevis corporations. Dorothy Kirkley, 33-year-old head of the prosecution team, she says she's ready. Judge Harold Murphy, very well respected here, he's been called the perfect judge to hear this case. 
He had hired actually three really, really prominent lawyers to defend him on the RICO case. Uh, one was Bobby Lee Cook, who was this real old Colonel Sanders figure and a legend in murder cases in Georgia. And he sort of had a magic ability to go into a courtroom and act indignant that his client was being put through this indignity. And he never broke that posture, which is the key both to comedians and good lawyers. Never break face. You don't look around and say, are people buying this nonsense? You make the issue be, how could they do this to him? The issue is them, not what he did. So Bobby Lee Cook was as good as it comes at that. Ed Garland worked on it. Ed was also very, very good, great on his feet. And he too was with the program in terms of you're insulted that your client could be put through this. And, and they, they were really good. And then they had a third lawyer they hired who was the professor, and this was some law professor, who would do the motions. And this was a guy you... I mean, Ed Garland was a second generation. He had one of these giant mansions in Buckhead. And, you know, it was like old Southern aristocracy. Bobby Lee Cook was the country lawyer who drove the Rolls Royce. You know, later the model for this Madlock uh, TV series. And then they had this third guy who was kind of ill-dressed, the professor who actually did all the motions. He was the legal mind, you know, the technical legal mind. They did the spellbinding stuff. So he had a great legal team. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. The trial began in August 1979. Over 150 witnesses were to be called. Everyone was there. Big Bill Scarborough, Pearl Strumminger and her husband Henry, Leon Walters, Nat Balin, Martin Hodes, and even Joanne Thebus was going to testify. Pearl remembered her time at the trial. I mean, he was very well-groomed, but he just looked like a slimy character, you know? You know, some people have that look on their face, smug, I guess. Yeah, like that. I thought it was a slime bucket. This was a very important case for the government, and one they had been building for years. It was the largest case of its kind ever tried by the Department of Justice at the time, and using RICO like this was a critical new weapon for going after organized crime. We won't go through every part of the trial, but there were so many ways the prosecution would go after Thevis. First and foremost, they would focus on the murders, including Roger Dean Underhill. They would also tie the criminal behavior to Thevis's corporations, not just the individuals. Many things were connected here. The IRS, taxes, and the sham sale of the corporations by Thevis to his secretary, Laverne Bowden. And what about the mob connections that the FBI had investigated for so long, starting way back in 1967? Would that be part of the trial? 
So what exactly happened when Mike Thevis escaped from prison in April of 1978 after he met up with Jeanette Evans? The government laid out a timeline of events leading up to and after Underhill's murder. Jeanette Evans helped Thebus obtain credit cards to help him while on the run. Alton Bart Hood, a policeman from Somerville, South Carolina, and cousin of Jeanette Evans, aided Thebus by helping him establish a new identity as Clarence Fegan. The real Clarence Fegan was a childhood relative to both Evans and Hood, one who had died very young. In July 1978, Hood and Evans reached out to Dennis Bradley, a skilled machinist. They asked for his help in making silencers for guns Thebus had. He was not able to do it for Evans and Hood, but the two kept in contact with Bradley all the way up to the day of the murder. When Thebus was arrested in Bloomfield, Connecticut, the same gun that had been given to Bradley had been found in the possession of Thebus. The conspiracy to kill Underhill was in full motion on October 19, 1978, the day Thebus and Evans canceled plans in Boston for Thebus's hair transplant operation. The two arrived in Atlanta and met up with Bart Hood on October 23rd. Thebus stayed at the Journey's End Hotel in North Atlanta, and Hood stayed at a Holiday Inn across the highway. Hood was using his police connections. He called the South Carolina Highway Patrol dispatcher to get the license tags on Underhill's car. He was stalking Roger Underhill. Evans met with a real estate friend and reviewed the property records of Underhill's place on Riverside Drive. She wanted to know the layout of the property before the hit went down just one day later. This was an unusual move. Tony Thebus told me that his father knew all about that property. This was the site where the Underhill and Thebus families had met for picnics near the Chattahoochee River. On October 24th, they knew Underhill was at his property down by the Chattahoochee River. Underhill had gone down there with his fiance Irene, to clean the property before Underhill was to show it to Isaac Galanti. The two men came in Galanti's car yesterday morning. You can see where the murderers may have climbed up this embankment and hidden behind one of those trees with a shotgun and probably another weapon. When Underhill and Galanti got about here, the murderers fired. The first shot struck Galanti, the second Underhill. Underhill fell. Galanti kind of stumbled forward. The murderers fired, hitting him again. Underhill always carried a gun with him. It was found clutched in his hand like this, but he hadn't been able to get off a single shot. How did the murderers know to be hiding up here, up this embankment behind one of these trees at this particular time? How did they know that Underhill would be coming up this roadway? No one except Underhill and Galanti knew who pulled the trigger that day. But circumstantial evidence and eyewitness accounts put the three of them nearby. Milton McMurray was an airline pilot who lived in a quiet residential neighborhood just a few miles from the Chattahoochee River. Jeanette Evans lived just seven houses down from McMurray and had once approached him about helping sell his house. They would wave to each other passing through the neighborhood, but otherwise, they really didn't know each other. He was working in the yard one day when he noticed Evans passing through the neighborhood in her powder blue Mercedes. She had a man in the front seat with her and another man in the back seat. The man in the front had long, wavy black hair and a black mustache. McMurray had never seen anyone with hair like that before. Both men turned to the right, away from McMurray, and Evans did not wave this time, gripping the steering wheel and staring straight ahead, turning out of the neighborhood. McMurray stood in his front yard and thought, What in the hell is that? 
Just 15 minutes later, McMurray saw the car come back, and this time he had a straight-ahead view of Evans and the passengers. He went in for a lunch break, dumbfounded by what he had seen. The next morning, McMurray piloted a flight up to Maine and was gone for two days. He bumped into an old co-pilot who passed McMurray and said to him, How does it feel to live in a subdivision with a celebrity? He said, You know, that girl was picked up with Mike Thebus. McMurray came home and realized that the man sitting in the front seat of that car was in fact Mike Thebus in full disguise. He had seen the three on October 25th, the day of the murders. The government continued. They said Thebus and Hood checked out of their motels in Atlanta. Thebus headed north to Connecticut, changing his identity again from Clarence Fegan to RBJ Evans, the brother of Jeanette, who also had the same matching full initials, A-J-E, as Anna Jeanette Evans. Thebus and Evans had been making plans to buy a house in the Connecticut area, and he visited that Bloomfield, Connecticut bank to withdraw $30,000, despite having $500,000 in cash and $1 million in jewelry in the trunk of the car. The government laid out their case. All the crimes, four murders, three arsons, mail fraud, extortion, and attempted extortion, and two attempted murders constituted a pattern of cold-blooded crime extending over a 10-year period. They argued that Michael Thebus and his corporation used murder and arson and extortion to gain control of the nationwide pornography business. The business had been built in the late 60s up to the mid-70s, and in 1974, they worked to protect that business, even trying to murder Roger Dean Underhill, who would have been a key witness for the prosecution if he had lived to testify in front of the jury. The government had no tape, nor Roger, there that day in Rome. After many closed-door sessions and furious debate on both sides, Murphy ruled that indeed, Underhill's interview transcript with the FBI would be read out loud to the courtroom during the trial. That killing someone as a means to exclude their testimony in a trial was a violation of their civil rights, even if the testimony details themselves were up for debate by both sides. FBI agent John Donovan was there in the courtroom. Donovan took the stand, reading Underhill's words back to the packed room. Leon Walters, once Thevis's personal and business confidant, had been in hiding. But now he was in Rome, Georgia, escorted into court with a bulletproof vest and surrounded by guards with automatic weapons. Leon Walters was given immunity from prosecution in exchange for his testimony. He has also been given FBI protection. He worked for Thevis as a troubleshooter, a confidant. He was Thevis's closest associate during 1973 and 74. On the stand, the former Green Beret captain said Thevis once told him of killing a man face to face, of shooting him and watching him beg for his life, and then shooting him again, and then of melting the gun to get rid of the evidence. It sounds very much like other testimony on the 1970 murder of Jap Hanna. Walters also testified that Thevis frequently talked of murdering another competitor, Jimmy Mays, and that when Thevis was in an Atlanta hospital after a motorcycle accident in 1973, he gave Walters $3,500. The money was for Roger Underhill to buy supplies. The next day, Jimmy Mays was blown up in his van, and Underhill presented Thevis with a piece of bone he was planning to turn into a paperweight. Walter said Thevis once offered him $20,000 if he could keep Roger Underhill from talking to the grand jury. Thevis's attorney, Bobby Lee Cook, calls Walters an accomplished actor. He called his testimony a theatrical display, 
Throughout cross-examination, Cook and Walters battled over inconsistencies and contradictions with Walters' past testimony. Cook hopes the jury will not put much stock in what Walters had to say. Then came Bill Scarborough, Big Bill, he's called. He has worked for Thevis and for Jimmy Mays. He was a few feet away when Mays was blown up in his van. He said, there were pieces all around me. But on cross-examination, he sounded more like a witness for the defense. He said he knew of no hostility between Thevis and Mays, and he called murdered witness Roger Underhill a schizophrenic. He said he wouldn't believe Underhill if he swore on a stack of Bibles, not something the government was planning on hearing from their own witness. Like Underhill, Walters had also sat with Paul King in 1977 and told him everything he knew about Thevis and the organization. But it was even more important to have Walters there in person, alive. Walters described seeing the pieces of bone from Jimmy Mays, a burning down the house on Simpson Street for an insurance scam. Walters had been right there with Thevis, and he was now sharing everything he knew about their time together. Walters had moved to California after he left Thevis's organization the second time in 1976, living under the name Lee Thomas. He even started writing a movie script while he was out there. In his deposition, he said gunshots sounded outside his apartment in California in May of 1977. He was inside with his wife and three boys, and several shots came through the window in an attempt to take him out. Walters told the courtroom he had been hospitalized for nervous exhaustion in 1978. The stress was too much. Between the gunshots aimed at him and his family, business problems he was having, and the anxiety of testifying in secret, it was too much for Walters to take. Once we really got people willing to talk to us, you know, the dam opens up and the water comes through. And once it's indicted, then other people came forward and, you know, wanted to talk about different crimes. But when you get so many incidents of illegal activity, you just, you know, how many times you're going to put him in jail for murder? I mean, you know, if you got a strong case, one or two murders is enough to put him away forever. So it's just not necessary. There was a lot of people working on that case at some point because they were all leads all over the country. The verdict was returned on October 21st, 1979. Mike Thevis, guilty on racketeering charges. Guilty of conspiracy to violate the civil rights of government witness Roger Dean Underhill by killing Underhill and Isaac Alanti. Thevis's Corporation, Global Industries, guilty of racketeering. Jeanette Evans and Bart Hood, guilty in the Underhill-Galanti killings. When the defendants left the courtroom, they looked stunned. Jeanette Evans said nothing. Neither did Bart Hood. But his wet and red eyes gave away his emotion. Mike Thevis, though, said plenty. Just round one. Just round one? Round one. What happened to me is one thing, but what happened to Bart and Jeanette just rails against the inconsistencies of fate. I'll never stop fighting these people. I'm filled with a bitterness and vengeance, and I'll never quit until they, until they put me wherever they want to. Thevis's attorneys plan to ask for a new trial and to keep on fighting. Uh, there's an old Chinese proverb which goes something like this. Uh, Victory has a thousand fathers, and defeat is an orphan. Uh, this case is going to be appealed, and we're going to reverse it. 
But the day belonged to these two people, two young government prosecutors who beat some of Georgia's best criminal defense lawyers. Well, as you know, since it was a total victory on all counts and all defendants, we are very pleased. Uh, I think that the verdict spoke the truth of the matter as we presented it to the grand jury and naturally very pleased with the result. And for FBI agent Paul King, five years of investigation had paid off. And after defense charges of a government vendetta against Thevis, it was also vindication. It shows that the FBI is, is a straight organization and that we conduct a good investigation. And so, after nine weeks, it is over. Just like the sun on a summer day And out of my dreams, yeah, yeah You came that day Just like a final cloud It's how my mind went your way And now down through the years It seems our love is ricocheting so I say, what are you going to do about tomorrow now, baby? What are you going to do about tomorrow? There's only one episode left, the exciting conclusion to Gangster House. Chapter 10, The Ballad of Tea is up next. You won't want to miss it. Gangster House is created, written, and hosted by me, Jason Hoke, and is a production of Imperative Entertainment. Shane Freeman is lead engineer with additional editing and production support by myself and Jasmine Cross with audio mixing provided by Resonate Recordings. Recording sessions at Tree Sound Studios, Atlanta. Claire Martin and Elizabeth Egan are story editors. Cover art and design by Trevor Eiler. Archival footage licensed courtesy of Brown Media Archives, University of Georgia, and WSB-TV in Atlanta, Georgia. Original music score by Brandon Bush. What Are You Going to Do About Tomorrow? Performed and written by Lolita Holloway. Originally released in 1996 by GMG. The publisher is Act One Music Company, Inc. Music licensed from Gin Music Group. Love the songs from Gangster House? Check out the new playlist on Spotify. Just search Gangster House. Some segments recorded using actors to recreate scenes based on this true story. For more information, exclusive photos, or tips on this story, visit gangsterhouse.com or visit us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching Gangster House. If you love the show, tell a friend and leave a review. Have questions? Email us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. Thanks for listening.
the Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.